I'm very big on advocating for health to be achieved prior to conception. So preconceptual health. Well, we need to have premenopausal health, you know. So the health of the woman through her life is really what creates her health savings account, you know, that's going to impact really how she's going to handle in every respect, uh, in every aspect, how menopause is going to affect her body and how she's going to be able to deal with it. So, you know, every woman, no matter how old you are out there, you are preparing for menopause. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Happy New Year. Now, I know it's already January 11th when this episode goes live, but today is January 2nd, and I am so excited to be a part of your health journey this year in 2022. I also can't wait for you to dive into today's episode because it is so fascinating. Now, a quick question for you. What if you could navigate perimenopause and menopause on your terms using everything, like every tool imaginable, including bioidentical hormones at your disposal? Now, for the past five years, I have looked at the research, and although I do believe that we need to lean heavily on natural solutions like nutrition, supplementation, and lifestyle tools for optimal results and longevity, I also always believe that if there is a tool that we can leverage to support our bodies throughout our entire lifetime, including bioidenticals, then let's look into it. Now, every one of our bodies are different, and everyone's going to respond differently, but Every tool that we can get our hands on so that we can expand that longevity is a tool that I think is worth exploring. Now, what I know to be true is that progesterone and estrogen are powerful chemical messengers in our body, more so than we realize, more so than we we yet to understand. They impact our metabolism, our brain function, energy levels, mood and emotional well-being, and most importantly, our longevity, right? How we age or how we age gracefully throughout the entirety of our lives. Now, it almost doesn't make sense that we would lose these critical hormones at such a young age, around our mid-40s for progesterone and our early 50s for estrogen. Now, I get that they are the primary drivers for reproduction, and that reproduction is meant to wind down, right? We know that to be true. But what about everything else that is on the massive list? Basically, what about all the other reactions and processes and, you know, cellular experiences that happen and drive are are driven by estrogen and progesterone. And because I want to deepen this conversation about what to do about our lacking hormones as we approach our 40s and beyond, I invited Dr. Felice Gersh, who is a pioneer in women's hormones and the women's health space, also a practitioner who has seen firsthand the benefit of extending bioidentical hormones in patients for many years after the start of menopause. And we're going to get deep into the nitty gritty about what she has seen in the research and what has she seen on a patient to patient level. Now, if you have been on the fence about what to do regarding hormone therapy, today's conversation is for you. And let me sing her praises before we dive in. Dr. Felice Gersh is an award-winning physician, dual board certifications in OBGYN and integrative medicine. She is the founder and director of Integrative Medicine Group of Irvine, a comprehensive women's healthcare practice. She is a best-selling author of PCOS SOS series, 
and the Menopause SOS series. She is published in several articles of peer-reviewed medical journals, and she's got a brand new book, which we're going to be talking about today, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know, which is available on Amazon, and we'll have a link in the show notes for this episode. Let's welcome Dr. Felice Gersh to the show. Hey, one more thing. I want to share something that I've been consistently using for my energy levels this year. See, as a new mama, I am always on the lookout for effective and easy ways to boost my energy, especially my mental energy. And this year, I added Organifi's green juice to my morning routine, and I love it. Their organic green juice is made with 11 superfoods, and it's easy to make, and it tastes amazing. And luckily, Organifi has given me a promo code to share with you so that you can add it to your morning ritual. Use promo code Dr. Marisa, D-R-M-A-R-I-Z-A, and get 15% off of your order at Organifi.com slash Dr. Marisa. Now, I'm going to have the link in the show notes for this episode, and I can't wait for you to try it. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Felice Gersh. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me and having this wonderful conversation. Oh my gosh, I am so, so excited to be talking about really menopause, but specifically your book as well, and why women must go through menopause. And and the reason why I love the idea of us having this conversation is that so many women are not necessarily looking forward to menopause and to what's on the other side. And I know a big part of the conversation that we have here on the podcast is not only are we going through it? Are we, we're doing it right. As we do everything and anything. Um, but we also get to do it on our own terms. And I think what, what allows us to do it on our own terms and Dr. Felice Kirsch, I'm really excited to have you speak into this, but is, is that really the, the knowing of what's going to happen? I feel like we didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I know that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. It's a journey every single woman will encounter and deal with because it's part of the life journey of every woman. So it is something that needs to come out into the light of day, be talked about, and then allow each woman to be prepared and then to optimize her health through the journey and thereafter. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to first kind of talk a little bit about your inspiration around why wanting to write this book and, and why wanting to serve women for all these years as a practitioner? Well, when I was going through medical school, I had to decide like every other doctor, well, what am I going to specialize in? Or am I going to just be a GP? Well, when I rotated through obstetrics and gynecology, my first rotation through that as a third year medical student, I knew instantly, this is for me. I love the excitement, the adrenaline rushes that you get when you go in to do a delivery. And of course, sometimes it could be life and death. You know, women can have a hypertensive crises, they could have hemorrhage, the baby can fly out, you could have triplets, you know, so there's like so much that can happen where you really have to make split second decisions. And I kind of fed off of the adrenaline rush and, and the variety that you do surgery. And then you can also have long-term relationships with patients that it's not just like a surgeon, you do one surgery and then you're done. You just never see that person again. You can have a lifetime 
relationship with your patients when you do OBGYN. So it seemed to have it all. And on top of that, it was dealing with women. And I myself was dealing with female issues because I wasn't having regular cycles. I couldn't get rid of my acne. And I I felt that I was getting nowhere. <laughs> no one was helping me. So it's one of those, um, like it covers all bases. You know, a lot of people go into fields that deal with problems their family members have been facing or they themselves. So I had, you know, everything was all together for me for OBGYN. It was dealing with all these really interesting women at every stage of life with all kinds of issues, you know, surgery, deliveries, and regular medical care. And I was going to figure out what was going on with me. Yes. (laughs) And so let's talk a little bit about what was going on with you and kind of how you were able to figure that out. It sounds to me like it was potentially polycystic ovarian syndrome. It was, right? No periods and acne and like the stray facial hair. It's like, what is this? And you know, I was very, very thin at that time. Now I'm sort of like regular, I have to say, but then I was like super thin. So I didn't meet the the typical look of women with PCOS, which was typically overweight or even obese. So when I went to get care at the, the healthcare center for women at my college, they just said the same as everyone says, go on birth control pills. And then I went and saw one of the uh, hotshot doctors when I was in medical school in the department. And he said the same thing, just go on birth. And he said, just go on birth control pills. And, you know, like you'll worry about it when you want to get pregnant. And it's like, but they make me feel like I want to throw up all day long. (laughs) I didn't like the feel of it. It gave me headaches. and, And I kept saying, but something is wrong with me. Don't you even care? And like, I didn't have a period for two years at that point when I went in, in medical school and like, nobody cared. <laughs> it was like, um, what is wrong with me? I mean, what is happening? And so it, I had to go figure it all out myself. And then that's why I went down the route of sort of helping women with PCOS. And then it really also, as I aged, I aged into menopause myself, of course, every stage of woman's life with going through puberty and then reproductive issues. And of course, then the transition into menopause and thereafter, every one of them held a tremendous interest for me. And I got to go through all of them myself. And, you know, and I never knew that I had such a low pain threshold until I had my first baby either. So I got to appreciate what labor is like. So there's nothing like going through things yourself and you can have this real identification with your patients and what they're going through. And, you know, as so I, I try to cover it all. And menopause is the, of course, universal event for every woman. And the average age in the United States is between 50, 51, some, some they say between 50 and 52. Um, I myself, once again, you know, was not, not normal. So I had uh, what would be called an early menopause. Um, at age 43, I was fully in menopause. And it's like, not me, not now, I'm not ready for this. And so I had to really do a deep dive into that as well. Like, why is this happening? And what can I do? So I wanted to share my own knowledge, my own investigation. So I define myself as a synthesizer. So I read widely through every type of scientific and medical literature to learn the basic science, what's going on. And then I try to look at all the different organ systems. You know, so I look, read through cardiovascular, you know, science and um, the neurology literature. So I look at it all because everything applies to women in some fashion. And then I try to synthesize it 
into a cohesive whole that can then be pragmatically and practically and effectively applied to clinical practice. So looking at how you can convert basic science knowledge research on things like mice and so on, and then see how that can apply to the actual care of humans. Because unfortunately, and you may be aware of this, and the readers may not, you know, the, the, the viewers, that up until 2015, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, did not require that women be in any studies that, you know, except obviously if it's a female-specific problem, obviously it has to be women, but like pregnancy. But otherwise, no, you don't have to include women. And that includes animal studies, like even the rats and the mice studies didn't include female rights, mice and rats. So we have like limited data. So sometimes we have to look, you know, and extrapolate from what has been studied because we don't have the data on women. Many of the drugs that are so commonly used, all the data was obtained in men. So, you know, it's like, uh, so I try to synthesize all this to put something together for women. And menopause is probably the most fascinating topic because it basically incorporates something happening in every organ system of the body. And it is fascinating. And the, the initial topic that you brought up of like, why is this that women have to go through this? I actually pose that question to myself. It's like, mother nature, why did you do this? <laughs> like, did this have to happen? You know, so it's like, you know, like a big question, like, why does this have to happen to women? And what is happening? And the, the word menopause itself, it's a kind of lovely word when you think it's like meno, it's from the Greek for moon, you know, that's kind of romantic sounding. And then pause, well, that's really, it's not really a pause, like a momentary pause. It's like a permanent pause. So they call, could call it meno stop, but they called it menopause. But it's um, really the end of the beautiful lunar cycles of women which incorporate way more, way, way more than just the end of having periods. And that's not always very clear to women. They think, oh, yay, I don't have to have a period, but they're not really thinking about what you might call the collateral damage <laughs> that occurs that comes along for the ride, which is uh, really massive, unfortunately. And that's why preparing for menopause, just like you know, you, I know we were talking before about you had a beautiful baby about a year ago. Well, I'm very big on advocating for health to be achieved prior to conception. So preconceptual health. Well, we need to have premenopausal health, you know. So the health of the woman through her life is really what creates her health savings account, you know, that's going to impact really how she's going to handle in every respect, uh, in every aspect, how menopause is going to affect her body and how she's going to be able to deal with it. So, you know, every woman, no matter how old you are out there, you are preparing for menopause. Yes, you are. And I feel like we really get a taste of that speaking into, I had my baby at 41 and I already knew I was showing signs of perimenopause, you know, that happened to me in my late thirties. And so, you know, really we get a, a good glimpse I would say a 10 plus year glimpse into what menopause can hold for us as we navigate that transitional period into perimenopause. I kind of, it kind of likens to the 12 years it takes to go through puberty. You know, we, we, we ramp into, we ramp into reproductive age and it takes a minute because as you and I both know, it is a, a energetic 
process to be able to conceive and grow a baby and then birth a baby. Like no wonder it takes us so long to get to that place. And then no surprise, it's going to take a minute for us to pivot into menopause as well. And so I think you're absolutely right. Like how do we prepare our bodies? And so I think a lot of women, you're like you said, kind of were told that they're just going to this proverbial moment in, in time where they're in their cycling phase, their, their follicular and luteal phase, of, of reproduction. And then one day, bam, they're just not. And it, it's, it's way more nuanced than that. There's a lot more in between. And there's a lot more that we can do to prepare to really get our bodies ready. Because as you mentioned, menopause isn't just a state of our reproductive system deciding that, you know what, we're done here. It is neurological. It is meta, my, metabolic. It is cardiovascular. It is immune system driven. It, all of these changes, it's mood. And the more that we can really love up on our body, it's what I really want to talk about today. We can gear up for that pretty, pretty important transition in our life that, like you said, if we're not prepared for, it can really feel like the wheels fall off. Absolutely. And it's so important now for every woman to really grasp what's happening, that Menopause, it gives the word, it gives the wrong idea. And you just touched on it, that it's a process. It's not like you hit a finish line and, oh, I just crossed it. And like, you know, no, it's a process. And what it really should be renamed is something like, you know, ovarian senescence. It's really about the ovaries. It's the story of the ovaries and their aging and their loss of capability of making these critical hormones estradiol, which is the estrogen from the ovaries and progesterone and testosterone is not really directly. It has a, there's definitely impact on testosterone, but testosterone has sort of a life of its own. And so it can be continued to be made well through the rest of the life, but definitely through the sixties. Yeah. But I rarely see that in labs. I oftentimes I find women's testosterone levels are way lower than they, than we'd anticipate early on. Well, testosterone is very, very, I mean, that's a whole really fascinating, (laughs) but just as a quick side note, nature designs testosterone to go down. You keep making it, whereas the ovaries completely cease to make even a drop of estrogen and progesterone, but testosterone by the average woman by age 40 is making half the testosterone from her ovaries that she made at age 20. So definitely there's a downward trajectory for testosterone. And uh, it's just more stuff that women have to deal with that they need to be aware of so that they can take proactive steps to, to deal with the consequences. And the consequences of this gradual, which it's a gradual, and it kind of parallels the decline of fertility, the decline of ovarian function. Because when fertility goes down, like for women typically, like certainly in their 40s, over 35, they can still have perfectly regular cycles. So you think, well, they're still having regular cycles. Why is their fertility going down? Because the egg quality is going down. And that's, you know, it's really important. We now know, of course, male sperm matter too. So the quality goes down and then you make a different quality embryo and then the embryo may not successfully be able to implant and it was won't take hold and it won't grow and so forth and of course this decline in in reproductive success and fertility is paralleled with ovarian function so it's really a process and that's why the aging process is really occurring you know and then accelerates as women get into the last 
five years and even 10 years before the last menstrual cycle occurs. And, and it's an arbitrary definition of menopause, which is you know 12 months without a spontaneous period. And that's an arbitrary definition. I mean, why couldn't it be? six months. Why couldn't it be 15 months? You know, it's a, these are made up definitions. So once you understand that even after ovulation stops and you're not having cycles, you're still making some estrogen from your ovaries, but you're not ovulating. And then eventually that goes away. And we never know the moment when estrogen is completely no longer made. And so, but it's a process of ovarian aging, declining functionality, um, declining quality of the eggs, number of eggs, and so on. And it's it's nature's plan. I mean, that's what we have to understand because it's a philosophical thing and it's also a natural thing, a biological thing. So we can approach it from many different ways of thinking, like why is this happening to women 100% of the time? And there's certain things that we can do to delay menopause but not by a lot, you know, by a little bit, you know, we can eat more vegetables. We can take like DHEA, you know, we can take some melatonin that we do for fertility. You can have PRP injected into your, your ovaries and that will do a little bit of rejuvenation, but we know the best we can do is improve fertility in the later stages of the fertile ability of women and also delay menopause a tiny bit, but you know, it is definitely not avoidable. So I used to, I would kid around like Benjamin Franklin um, in all his wisdom. I don't know if he originated this, but he said, this is to paraphrase, you know, in life, you can only count on two things, death and taxes. Well, that's because he's a guy. Like, why didn't he say and menopause, you know? <laughs> taxes and menopause, you know? So, you know, there's nothing you can do as a woman to get out of that. And, and it is nature's way and understanding what's happening and the process of ovarian aging and its ramifications throughout every organ system is really essential if we're going to deal effectively with all the consequences. Absolutely. Well, and I'd love to know what your thoughts are because I we've done a really big deep dive into metabolic dysfunction um, here on the show and knowing that 80% of adults are dealing with metabolic dysfunction. And I find that when you pair metabolic dysfunction, well, one, metabolic dysfunction is a big part of PCOS. Um, and, but when you pair metabolic dysfunction with the loss of ovarian function with estrogen and progesterone taking a nosedive, I find that things definitely can feel a lot worse. And so when you're speaking into what we can do in the process of really gearing up like that, that bank account that we're saving for, so that post-menopause or menopause, I like, I just call it menopause moving forward. It's just that point, but whatever, however you like to phrase it in that conversation or in the research that you've looked at, it's definitely, I feel like in the research I've looked at is if we can do a lot to support our metabolism, especially for a neurological function, we could have a little bit more ease and grace moving into menopause it, because we can't stop the loss of estrogen and progesterone that, like you said, it's inevitable. Like Benjamin mm -hmm. Franklin should have known that that's the thing, <laughs> yes. but there are definitely other things that we can do to kind of support our bodies so that maybe we, we don't feel that major cognitive shift. We don't feel those crazy mood swings, or we don't feel that, that memory or lack of alertness with our brain function, you know, after we kind of enter into menopause and beyond. 
So if you define metabolism, you know, because everyone's talking about, you know, metabolic health, metabolism, and people say, well, what the heck is metabolism anyway, right? So if you think of it as the critical essentials of life, the production, distribution, and utilization, and storage of energy. So like, what's the difference between someone who's alive and someone who is dead? Well, if we think about electrical activity in the heart, you know, everyone's seen the, the TV shows where they're looking at the EKG and it's like doing its, you know, you're doing, and then it's like, oh, da, 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 you know, so a, a flatlining, right? For the brain, for the heart, no electrical activity. So in the brain, it's brain death. In the heart, it's death of the whole body, right? And that is loss of energy. So you think of the electrical activity, that's the energy of the heart, the energy of the brain. Well, most people don't know this, but the mitochondria, these little organelles in every cell that are the energy factory. So I think of them as sort of like the um, the the little fireplaces, you know, that keep everything going. They're making the energy. So you have all these little mitochondria. And of course the brain has the most, the heart, like the second, they're oh, like- I the thought the ovaries energy. had the most. Well, the ovaries are very, very energy dependent too. It's hard to count them all, but I was just going to add that. You just jumped, uh, right. That the, the, the brain, the heart, you know, reproductive organs like the ovaries and so forth are very energy needing. You have to have energy. Nothing in the body is going to work well without energy. And estrogen, the form estradiol, is key to mitochondrial function. That is so often like the one of the forgotten essentials of understanding these hormones is that if you look at a picture of the mitochondria and you look at all the different aspects of what it's doing with the electron chain, the the oxidative phosphorylation, the um, transfer of nutrients across the membrane, because you know you've got to have the the pump that gets the long chain fatty acids and such into the mitochondria, the whole thing, the biogenesis, mitogenesis, you know, creating new mitochondria, all essentially need estradiol. And estradiol plays a role in every part of mitochondrial function, the creation of energy. So loss of estrogen from the ovaries translates into loss of the capability of creating adequate amounts of energy. So that will manifest in a host of ways throughout the body. Of course, in the brain, that is a big problem. If your brain doesn't make enough energy, it's not going to work properly. It doesn't do any good to have, like you can eat and eat and eat, but if you can't transfer that food, which is an energy supply into actually energy production, you know, like, so it's like you live in a log cabin and it's in the middle of a snowstorm and you have one fireplace inside and you've, you have tons of logs. I mean, you have no shortage of logs, like the equivalent of food. So there's no shortage of that, but your fireplace is broken, like you can't open the flu. So you, if you burn anything in it, you'll just die of smoke inhalation or you're burned down. So you can't create that energy. So you're freezing in this log cabin, even though you have plenty of fuel. So we often, as we age, you know, in women after menopause and going through the transition, we have plenty of source of energy nowadays, you know, not maybe in the past, but nowadays. So we have plenty of fuel, also known as food, but we can't turn it properly into energy to actually create the proper function of every organ system. And it's a different skill set to create fat storage 
and to burn fat. And so after menopause, we maintain the skill to make fat, but we lose the skill to properly burn fat. And, and so, you know, that's why after, after menopause, there's this redistribution of body composition, and we end up with a lot more body fat, especially in the middle, the visceral fat, and muscle, which is you know huge, also all muscle is critical for maintaining glucose regulation, creation of energy. So the, the muscle starts to decrease, along with um, bone starts to decrease, and these are really critical organs, not just for mobility, but also for energy regulation purposes. And so we lose. I mean, so talk about a big handicap after menopause without proper mitochondrial function, we have these problems. Now, giving hormones in menopause can definitely help. But I, you know, right now, and I'm actually going to be talking to a researcher, it's fascinating, who's doing actually ovarian transplants and has actually done some transplants like from mice into chimpanzees and things. So maybe in the future, I don't think it's going to be for me, but in the future, we'll be able to like clone ovaries and get like when we're 50, we get the equivalent of a 25 year old set of ovaries. But right now I don't have that capability to help any of my patients or myself that way. So even when I give hormones, it's not the same as being 25 year old with those wonderful 25 year old ovaries. So no matter what we do with hormone replacement therapy, that's not adequate. It's not, it's like, I consider it necessary, but not sufficient. So we have to pull every other tool out of our toolbox. So how can we essentially maintain metabolic function with mitochondria that are malfunctioning? Well, there are some tricks to the trade and one of them actually is fasting. So it's really interesting how fasting has been shown to like just put the body into this rejuvenating state you know where you actually trigger autophagy which is cellular rejuvenation and you trigger bad cells the the, the ones that may go down the path towards cancer these cells that are using up energy for no good benefit in the body and creating a lot of inflammation. These old senescent cells create a lot of inflammation, which underlies most of the degenerative diseases that we consider aging diseases is this chronic state of inflammation. So we can actually help to prevent or like reduce this severity of a lot of this loss of mitochondrial function by helping the body to do what it can do the best with eating and sometimes not eating. So time-restricted eating and various forms of fasting can really help with mitochondrial function. And then when you combine it with adequate nutrition, because we want to always have our coenzymes. So there's like this whole group of enzymes, the sirtuins that are involved with rejuvenation. And that's where the fasting comes in, that it helps to support and promote the production of the sirtuins. And that is an enzyme system, histone deacetylases, that go back and they've done that in like worms and even earlier creatures than worms. So they can do, it's like what we call preserved in throughout the different evolutionary species of all kinds is these sirtuins. And there's the special type, the SIRT3s that are in mitochondria. And we can actually promote the promotion of the growth and development of these enzymes and the functionality through these different types of fasting. And then estrogen, which is a very key component of this whole process. So without estrogen, it's also really necessary for sirtuins to work properly. And then you need the the coenzyme, the NAD, which also 
is important to get from proper nutritional um, to make sure you have all the B vitamins and niacin and so on so that you can make NAD. But estrogen is a key part of this. That's part of the reason why without estrogen, you know, you're not going to have proper rejuvenation of like autophagy it requires having estrogen. So by giving this type of thing, you can help. And then another really key way to help mitochondria to stay functioning, have better metabolism is through fitness and exercise. So that's like, like the all-purpose medicine is exercise. And it's been shown to also improve mitochondrial function and metabolism. So proper timed eating, eating the right foods, doing some fasting and having really great fitness and exercise, and then adding in physiologic hormones for people who want it. I don't force anything on anyone, but I personally love hormones because I understand them. I'm not afraid of them. I'm only afraid of endocrine disruptors. So, um, which is what, unfortunately, that type of thing is what's often studied and then assumed to be bioidentical hormones, which I'm sure you've covered that whole understanding that you've got to talk about what you're actually talking about and study what you want to study and then not make assumptions that something that you study is applicable to something you didn't study, you know? So we know we want to make sure that we understand what the hormone is that's being studied, that it's a human hormone or, or an endocrine. Not disruptor. a horse hormone. Yeah. Not a right. Something that even the horse doesn't want. Right, right? exactly. So. Well, let's, let me break it down really quickly. So, you know, and I want to go back into talking about hormone therapy in just a moment, because I know there's a lot of people who opt in or opt out. And so, and, and we talk a lot about mitochondrial function and hormesis and all the different ways to really stress mitochondrial and then the cofactors, because to me, everything's about the mitochondria. So I love, I love that. And, you know, I, I, we've broached the topic of estrogen and its role in mitochondria too on the show, but so that women know one, we got to bolster up those mitochondria, no matter what. I think that that's so critical, right? But then as we get older and heading into menopause, knowing that we're going to lose these really important precursors, these extremely critical. I always say that progesterone was the hormone you took for granted until it's gone. Because she really, you were like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that she was doing all of this, right? And then estrogen, I feel like the she really lets you know what it's going to feel like when she's gone on the roller coaster ride down. But progesterone, she kind of quietly bows out, and then you start crying for her. Um, and so that's kind of always how I, I feel it and see it as we move through this. Um, but we lose we lose estrogen, we lose progesterone. That's going to happen. And with that, if we didn't stack up our mitochondrial reserves and we didn't help to bolster those. We didn't help to support the way in which that we are able to create energy in the body, right? Fuel isn't the issue. Are we actually transferring it over to energy? We lose estrogen. So the recommendation I know for you is one, do the work on the metabolic front, right? Eat the healthy food, exercise, stress the system so that our mitochondria are happy, buzzing, little fireplaces, doing the job of making more energy. But on the one hand, in order to kind of bolster us a little bit, you are recommending basically estradiol and progesterone to just give us a little something for as long as possible to maintain a lot of the organ systems that are potentially degenerating because we're now in menopause. Is that correct? Right. So I can never argue against the fact, which is an absolute fact that menopause is natural and which gets back to like, well, if every woman has it and like, well, why? I mean, well, actually most animal species, when their reproductive lifespan ends, 
so does the whole lifespan. So most creatures on earth die when reproduction ends. A few animals, and humans are among them, will continue to live as females without reproductive capability. So nature designed women to have this sort of end end time of in terms of reproduction. And it's logical. If you think of evolution, if you believe in evolution, which I do, you know, but, you know, but we, or however you want to think we got here, you know, we are designed so that we are reproductively successful creatures. And that is the prime directive of life. Now, remember, humans are the only species on the planet that tries to control their reproductive destiny. No other animal does that. You know, they don't say, this is not a good year to have a baby. I think I will not have sex. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, put any like rabbits together, dogs together, you know, you're going to get little puppies and, you know, you know, we do just going to get them. So that's how it works. And in humans, we have changed the paradigm of thinking of reproduction. And we think of it as, oh, an option you could just take or leave, you know, like the fancy hubcaps or the, you know, standard, you know, no, but reproduction is embedded in our whole everything, including our, our metabolism. That's why you have to think of sex hormones as life hormones. They're, they're about the whole body. They're not, and reproduction is not a tacked on little part. And so when reproduction ends, a lot of metabolic functions go into decline. We don't die because we, you know, we also make estrogen in organs. That's how men get estrogen. They make it specifically in organs. We call that paraquin and we make it from precursors, but men make a lot of their estrogen from testosterone. And we have, as we discussed, declining levels. So we don't have as much precursor to make the, the hormones, the estrogen from the, the precursors because we don't have the precursors so much. So our estrogen levels are going to decline, not just from our ovarian, ending or senescence, but also we can't make as much in the tissue. So we live the rest of our lives with a state of hormonal deficiency. And, and we're so amazing as humans, how adaptable we are to all kinds of adverse situations. Like when you see people living in really a star, almost a starvation scenario, and yet they're still alive, we are the most adaptable creatures ever. That's why we're not extinct, but nature designed us to have a reproductive lifespan. And that's it. And that makes sense because if women were having babies in their 60s, they probably have like a mortality rate that was through the roof. They wouldn't be alive long enough to raise their children to their reproductive maturity because, you know, obviously now people live to be much older, but, you know, if you go back in, in time, there weren't a whole lot of women living and raising little kids when they were 70, you know, that's not, you know, they were raising sometimes grandkids and, you know, we have that whole grandmother hypothesis and so on that allows us to live another dozen years after reproduction ends to help raise the grandkids. But, but we're not designed to go on forever, but we've like, adapted to um, with better food and environment sanitation that we can live longer, but we don't always live better. So once we accept that nature designed us to have a reproductive lifespan and when it ends, like it, and it's supposed to end and because our eggs are all gone, we females are born with a set number and I mean, there's some question about can you make new eggs or not, but you know, we're not going to make a whole bunch, even if we make any new ones. And so we're born pretty much with our full set of eggs. And, and when they're gone, they're gone and they're designed to be used up at a certain point. And then we have to fend for ourselves. So understanding that, then we can sort of just accept 
menopause as natural. But in medicine, like I'm a doctor, I'm an MD, um, there's nothing that is natural that is beyond my desire to modify. So, I mean, that is what we do. I mean, like, like think of cosmetic dentistry, you know, like we do modify net nature when we don't like it. I mean, that's what MDs do. So we give you artificial joints when your own ones wear out, you know, artificial limbs, if you're in a car accident, I mean, like amazing things that we can do, right? None of which is natural because we don't like what natural has happened or what's interfered with natural, like, you know, whether it's illness or accidents or aging. So to me, the fact that our ovaries have a natural lifespan, and then after that, we go into sort of a metabolic decline state, like, so I don't care that it's natural. I mean, the people argue like, well, it's natural. Menopause is supposed to be natural. Your hormones are supposed to go away. And it's like, yeah, so I don't like gray hair. I don't like wrinkles. I don't like, you know, I don't like joints going apart, et cetera. So I don't have a problem addressing the natural question, but some people do. So I'm like, it's okay. So I try to bend natural to what I want. So like, I'm not going to recreate food. We already tried that. That didn't work. So, you know, you want to give hormones as well to be mimicking as close as possible what's optimal for the body. So even when you go against nature, you want to go with nature, right? Because everything that's so-called age management or anti-aging is going against nature, but that's okay because we're having higher quality life and we're a whole lot cheaper for the healthcare system too. So, you know, I want to give hormones to be more physiologic. I only want to give hormones that are naturally in the human body, the kind that nature gave us from our ovaries. I want to replace it because some smart people figured out how we can do that and I can utilize it. So I want to mimic nature as much as possible. And that means, you know, the rhythms are circadian rhythms and our lunar rhythms. So we want to recreate the environment in every cell that allows the cell to function at an optimal level. Because I always say, well, a cell doesn't really think I'm old. The cell just does what it's genetically programmed to do. So if we can maintain the proper milieu of a younger person with the proper nutritional status, hormones, and all the rhythms that we're born with to make sure our clock genes are all working on cue, so all our organs are working in the same time zone, in the same uh, synchrony, because that's sort of part of menopause is because our clock genes and our master clock are all programmed through estrogen to some degree. What you mean by that is by when we get back, if we were to get back on hormones in menopause, maybe even in perimenopause, to keep them within the cycle that our bodies would have normally have run. That would be the best. Now, I'm actually part of a study that's just beginning now that is going to look at replacing hormones in a physiologic way to mimic a menstrual cycle. We don't have good data on that. We have you know, anecdotal data. We just anecdotal data. So we're trying to start a study. So what I recommend is giving levels of bioidentical human estradiol to try to achieve a sort of a reasonable level. Not the, the idea that came out after the Women's Health Initiative was the lowest dose. Well, I don't go for the lowest dose. I go for the most effective dose. You know, why would I give the lowest dose of vegetables that you could survive with? I want to give what's optimal. So I want to give the optimal dose. So that would be something that would a woman would maybe have like during her luteal phase, you know, not the lowest, not the highest, but something sort of in the mid range. And then I want to give progesterone to give it in a pulsed way because the human body, the female body doesn't make the same amount of progesterone every day 
of the cycle. It only makes it in the luteal phase. So at least that much I can do. I can give just like essentially recreate a luteal phase. So I give the estrogen and I would, and physiologic levels, I give the progesterone to be pulsed. And then yet yeah, uh, most women will have a bleed. So it's not fertility. They're not, I may wish I could do that. I can't bring back fertility by giving hormones, but I'm giving back the period. Now I just tell women, they say, oh, women hate having periods because that's why that's the best thing about menopause. And I say, well, think about it this way. That's how you're created is to have a period. And it's a sign that not only are you shedding the lining of the uterus, but bad cells elsewhere in the body. And we know that there's like, think of it as a catharsis and your body is like going through this cycle and, and it's good for you. And when you give the period in the menopause, you're not going to give like heavy cramps and heavy bleeding. I mean, it's not, it's not going to give, it's, it's not re it's not recreating the worst period on the planet. That's not what it's doing, you know, because it's not really a period. It's, it's a withdrawal bleed. So you're not going to have all the, the, if so, so the menstrual cycle, we always talk about, it's a vital sign. If your period is horrible, that means there's a problem. So, but we're not recreating that when we give bleeding with the hormones in the menopause, it's very mild, you know, any woman can deal with it. And for how, so for how long have you been able in your own personal practice, have been able to keep women on hormone therapy to help, you know, again, boost met metabolic function. As you mentioned before, I think one of the biggest highlights of this conversation, I think, I hope women walk away with, as we talked about mitochondria being the most robust in the brain, the ovaries and the heart. And I'm going to argue that there's still the most in the ovaries only because I just think that is so cool. If women had the most mitochondria in the ovaries relative to men and women, I just love that idea, but that it is a metabolic process. Like you can't have reproduction without metabolism. And so as you can imagine, the bow out of those, the, that reproductive system is the bow out of the whole system, no matter how you slice it, how long is recommended, or do you, have you seen women are able to stay on hormones to kind of maintain some of that? Well, happily, I don't have to be like under wraps any longer because, you know, like, because I've always promoted lifetime because like, when do you want to be in a state of deficiency? I mean, never. So, but the, fortunately, you know, because we always like as MDs like to go with something that's considered so-called standard of care. So um, in 2017, a big conservative mainstream organization, the North, the North American Menopause Society, NAMS, they came out with a new position statement on hormones. And it was obviously when you, when you read it, that there were two different schools of thought because they came out with like something of a, like a mishmash of opinions. But one of the key opinions that did come out in that position statement was that um, you can prescribe for the life of the woman forever you can give hormones for the following three reasons. And I just, I bow down to them for coming up with this and all the, I just can't even imagine all the, the infighting that must've happened before this came out. But in the end, they said lifetime hormones for treatment of symptoms. That would be traditionally nights, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, and so on for bone health, because that's the only other FDA approved use and for quality of life. So. I mean, quality of life is everything, right? So basically, you know, mood and sleep and energy and pain reduction and, and 
body composition, everything that goes into being a happy, healthy female is quality of life. So I now have, you know, a rubber stamp, you're okay to give hormones for life from the North American Menopause Society, which is worldwide recognized as an authority on menopause, you know, take it or leave it, whatever you think, but they are recognized as such. And so now I have the, the green light to give hormones forever. And they did say under medical supervision, you know, so it's not a do it yourselfer, but it's definitely now okayed officially that I can give hormones forever for the life of the woman. And that I have women in their nineties now on, on hormones. And I, they're, they're, they're like my most amazing patients ever. And I, I just love it. And you know, I think that everyone should be aware that this is actually a viable option, that this old idea that when you hit 60 and for sure 65, that you should just get off. You're too old. You know, you've probably heard this expression. You're too old to be on hormones. It's like, give me a break. No, you're not. You know, you will get a break because over 50% of women have osteoporotic fractures. So you do not want to give up something that is beneficial for no good reason other than some ridiculous, archaic view of hormones based on the Women's Health Initiative. So please, you know, eradicate all those crazy views and see hormones for what they are messengers of vital information to the cell to help the cell to do what it needs to do to optimally function. It's as simple as that. Now on a cellular level, it gets really complex, but when you just think of the basic purpose of a hormone, it's to give information so that the cell will know what to do, what, what enzyme to make, what protein to make, what kinase to make, you know, so that the cell will do what it should do so that you can be a healthy, happy woman. So don't give that up for no good reason other than people who are still living with all ideas, you know, like the earth isn't flat, hormones don't kill. I mean, let's just get over it. I love it. I so appreciate this conversation. And I so appreciate that you have put this in a book as well. And we get to have this conversation. Dr. Felice Gersh, where is the book? I take it it's on Amazon. Is it out now? It is out. It just came out um, in the last couple of weeks. And so it is available on Amazon and it's gotten rave reviews. So I'm very, very proud of it. And it's really, the, I would call it the foundational guide to what every woman can face in menopause at every stage. So I broke menopause down into three stages. It's somewhat arbitrary, like the 10 years preceding the end of cycle, the first 10 years of menopause, and then the next how many decades thereafter, because there is some variation in what each stage of menopause encompasses as far as different medical problems and symptoms. So the first, I always say the first step is to define the problem. You will never solve a problem if you haven't even defined what the problem is. So basically this book is defining menopause, what it is, the different problems throughout the body. And then it also gives a quick guide for each and every one of the 50 things that I discuss, what you can do about it. And so it's almost like a reference book that you can look up the different problems that women face at different stages of their menopausal journey, and then what you can do about it. Hmm, love it. I just want to say thank you so much for doing the work and, and diving into the research and putting it together. Because as you mentioned, up until 
less than a decade ago, we were mandated to actually work, like look at women's bodies, research women's bodies. And so having to like take all that information and kind of piece it together and really be able to come up with an integrative plan for women is what you do best. And so I was just so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, I, for, let me just mention the name of my book. Oh, yes, for, yes. Oh, so, I little, so it's called Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. Perfect. So, and um, it's my pleasure. I thank you for giving me, me this opportunity to discuss a topic that both you and I are passionate about. I don't know about you, but Dr. Gersh has given me a lot of food for thought today. I think my biggest takeaway from this conversation is why not use every resource at our disposal to live our very best life, right? Dr. Felice Gersh is very much on the mission to have you own a big chunk of your life, right? We think about 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond, and you get to own it on your terms. I mean, that's what her biggest mission is, is helping women to feel their very, very best for as long as possible. And if hormones need to be a part of that conversation, then let's talk about it. Now, she breaks down all of her insights and all of the newest research in her book, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. As I mentioned earlier, I'm gonna have the link to the book in the show notes, but she also has given us a free ebook called Menopause SOS. So if you wanna get started right this second, head on over to the show notes, download that ebook and get started. I'm also have a link to my latest book, The Essential Oils Menopause Solution. We had Dr. Gersh and I were talking about it afterwards and there's so much that is in common with these books. They are great resources and amazing companions. So if you haven't grabbed my book as well, definitely do so. This is the best time of the year to do the 21 day program that is in that book. It will change your life. Not only will it optimize your gut, your liver, your mental capacity, your brain function. I mean, it is a incredible makeover and it's all about just really nourishing, healing and loving your body. That is my biggest mission. How do we nourish? How do we love upon? And how do we really optimize how your body functions that you can go do the work that you want to do and even know that you need to do in the world? Now, thank you so much as always for listening into today's Essentially You podcast. As you know, I just shared my mission, but this show is all about providing tools to rock your hormones and feel amazing in your body so that you get to go do what you do best. Now, if there's someone in your life that needs to hear this, someone who's debating whether they should do hormone therapy, someone who's on it but doesn't feel great about it, or someone who is stepping into their 40s and 50s and trying to figure out how to navigate with a lot of ease and grace, definitely send this episode over to them. Take a moment and screenshot it or share it on social. If you do, hashtag me. And definitely hashtag hormone literacy or hormone CEO. Until the next episode, have an amazing day. 